The talk you are about to hear is by Roshi Amala Wrightson, teacher at the Auckland Zen Center. Today is day two of our summer seven-day session. It's the 7th of January, 2024. And we're going to continue reading verses from Affirming Faith and Mind. I'll just read the verses we're going to see if we can look at this morning. Uh, we're starting with the last one from yesterday. Just calmly see that all is one and by themselves false views will go. We'll look a little bit more at that one. And then the others we're going to look at are attempts to stop activity will fill you with activity. Remaining in duality, you'll never know unity. And not to know this unity lets conflict lead you far astray. When you assert that things are real, you miss their true reality but to assert that things of avoid also misses reality. The more you talk and think on this, the further from the truth you'll be. Cut off all useless thoughts and words, and there's nowhere you cannot go. Returning to the root itself, you'll find the meaning of all things. If you pursue appearances, you overlook the primal source. Awakening is to go beyond both emptiness as well as form. All changes in this empty world seem real because of ignorance. Do not go searching for the truth. Just let those fond opinions go. So we'll see if we can cover those ones. So just calmly see that all is one and by themselves false good views will go. This is Master Shen Yin's comment on this. Seeing that all is one means making no distinction between sage and sentient being or between subject and object. This is another way of describing the totality of space. When you experience everything is equal, all distinctions will naturally disappear. While remembering not to abide either in existence or emptiness, you should also know that existence and emptiness are not separate. This is a very, very important point, a central teaching within our tradition. We, when we chant the 
Heart Sutra, we repeatedly say this line, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. Yet, is everything really the same? Once I said that Buddha sees all sentient beings as the same and is aware of every single thought in the universe. Someone raised the point that if the Buddha's mind was constantly being bombarded with such a tremendous influx of thoughts, it would be, not be a very comfortable state. This would mean that the Buddha's mind is like a garbage can and that all thoughts of all sentient beings are being dumped into it. That would certainly be a heavy burden on the Buddha. If you take a snapshot with a high-quality camera, everything in the front of the lens will be imprinted on the film in minute detail. You can see the tip of each blade of grass and the outline of every leaf. Yet the camera does not think, how annoying all this drunk is trying to get my attention. No. In one shot, it takes everything without making distinctions among the objects, whether they are good or bad, long or short, green or yellow. But just because the camera does not make distinctions does not mean that the images on the film will appear confused or in the wrong order. On the contrary, everything is there clearly and in place. The Buddha's mind is like this. Having an equal mind means that there is no conception of relativity between things. Everything is absolute in the sense that there is no separation between you and others, between past and future. Because you see everything as equal, you would not choose one thing over another. Yet as soon as there are no longer any differences, it is as if existence simply disappears. For example, if, if everybody were male, the label men would no longer apply since it is only, its only purpose is to distinguish men from women. Every, everyone being the same, there wouldn't be no need for names. If you take an equal attitude towards everything, all differences will disappear along with existence itself. We can sometimes get um, a little tip of the tongue taste of this, this when our mind is, is relatively empty and suddenly the, we experience the, our environment as being bright and clear and at the same time insubstantial. Most of the time, our, our, our view of things is, is um, clouded over with all our opinions and thoughts. Just calmly see that all is one and by themselves false views will go. He continues, Once I handed the incense board to a student and asked him, what is this? Uh, the incense board is the name that they use in Chan and Chinese Zen for the kyosaku, the stick. So he, he, he hands the stick to a student and says, what is this? The student grabbed the stick, shook it a few times, and, he and shook it a few times. He did that because there was no name for it. We may call it a stick, 
but this is only our mind making distinctions, why must we call it stick? Quite rightly, why can't we call it rabbit or uh, engine? During a retreat, I stood in front of a certain person. I asked him, who is standing in front of you? He replied, an egg. I was very pleased to be an egg. When the retreat was over, I asked him, why is Shifu, Shifu is like sensei, why is Shifu an egg? He answered, when Shifu asked me the question, I did not have any thought in my mind at all. Since I had to give an answer, I just said something, and the word egg spontaneously came out of my mouth. Later I thought, that isn't quite right. How can Shifu be an egg? But I said it, and, and it said. When he said egg, it was the correct answer. In fact, whatever he said at that moment would have been the correct because he did not have any thought in his mind. He was an, in an absolute state, not making any distinctions. But once he began to entertain doubts, he lost the answer. Perhaps in this retreat I will also stand in front of you and ask, who is standing in front of you? Then, recalling the story of I, I've just told, you may me, give me a similar answer and call Shifu a horse. However, this would not be correct if you have the idea of giving a good answer. This is the mind of distinction. It is not the mind that treats everything as equal. So, um, we're we're cultivating this mind of equality in Sishin, but we're very caught up in our um, ideas about being right and wrong, giving a good answer, impressing the teacher, all these things. And they, these don't dissolve um, immediately. We, we have to come up against them again and again. The way to beyond them is, is simple and straightforward. Just calmly see that all is one and by themselves false views will go. To just unite with the practice, that's how we see that all is one.
Next verse is, attempts to stop activity will fill you with activity. Remaining in duality, you'll never know of unity. If we, if we try to get to a state of, of greater stillness and calm, then that, that generates activity, agitation. It, it pulls apart um, reality into my, me over here wanting to get over there. And Xingyin says, originally your mind may be in a relatively, relatively stable state, but when you realize that your mind is not completely unmoving, you may try to make it even calmer. However, the effort to still your mind will cause it to become more active. The mind that makes no distinctions is unmoving. There are no ups and downs. If you try to eliminate the ups and downs, it would be like observing a pan of water. There are gentle ripples on its surface, but you want the surface to be completely still, so you blow on the water to flatten it out. This creates more ripples. Then you press the water with your hands to stop it from moving. The outcome is even more agitation. If you were to leave the water alone, the ripples would eventually subside and the surface would be still. This is, this is a lesson we need to learn over and over again. If you were to leave the water alone, the ripples would eventually subside and the surface would be still. Common sense tells us that we cannot force the water to become calm. When it comes to practice, however, it is difficult for us to apply the same principle. When practicing, it is sufficient to just keep your mind on the method. This, this, um, it really, in a, in a sense, it doesn't matter how many thoughts we have in our mind as long as we don't react to them, or we don't interact with them. Say we've got some obsessive thought that, that comes again and again. Well, we can just say to it, okay, come if you must, but I'm just not going to play with you. I'm not going to engage. And that has the effect of, of over time, of stilling the mind. The thoughts don't get any energy of, uh, directed at them by means of our attention, and they subside. We could say that doing this uh, is, is an aspect of our faith in mind that we're talking about here and that uh, Sang San is talking about. Faith in the, in the existence, in the background of our still unmoving true nature. When practicing, it is sufficient to just keep your mind on the method. It is unnecessary to reflect upon how well you are doing or compare whether you are in a better state now than you were half an hour ago. During the evening talk, I may, that means um, Doksan, I may ask you, how are you doing today? At this time, you are allowed to express your feelings, but when you are practicing, you should definitely not investigate your mental state and judge your practice. 
It's, it's a fine line. Uh, obviously, um, I want to find out how people are doing when they come to Dogsan, but at the same time, um, it's not helpful to, to get too focused on how I was before, how I am now, what's, what uh, I'm likely to be doing later on, all of this um, discursive or linear um, stuff can, can uh, just get in the way. But I, I may on occasion ask you how you do and I hope you will tell me. <laughs> Someone said to me, Shifu, I feel very ashamed. I come to retreat and again and time again, and yet I never make any progress. I said, the very fact that you are still coming to retreat and practicing is proof that you are making progress. Sticking it out. Enduring through times of difficulty and feeling stuck feeling dry. We, we journey through all kinds of landscapes in our sitting. Arid deserts, swampy marshes, high mountains, endless plains. But the, the way that we respond to these different landscapes is, is pretty much the same, which is keep putting one foot in front of the other, one breath after another, one moo after another. Years ago, when the center wasn't very old, it was maybe two or three years that we've been going, we had two teams in, in the Ox, Oxfam Challenge Trail Work Walker, 100K walk. And uh, I'd never done anything like that before and got blisters pretty early on in the process. So my feet were really, really painful. And I know that I wouldn't have been able to do it if I hadn't had many, many sashines under my belt to keep me putting one foot in front of the other, not thinking ahead, not looking back, but just one step at a time. Practice with an equal mind and don't distinguish between good and bad. Do not compare your condition before and after the retreat or judge whether the method you are using is right or wrong. How many times do we hear this advice and uh, not really heed it and get caught up in, in thinking about before and after and progress and lack of progress? Remaining in duality, you'll never know of unity. In another translation of this, it's got stagnating in, re in duality.
if we there's no way around it, we we have to let go of our dualistic thinking. If we are if we are to uh, apprehend this unity, this underlying unity. Master Ching says, whenever you make distinctions, your mind is in opposition. Opposition implies a duality. When we make distinctions, when we make distinctions, there's always a subject making the distinctions about an object. We, we take, get given a koan and then we use all the, uh, the strategies that we usually try to use in our lives on solving the koan. And one a big one of those is, is um, trying to figure it out. Master Ching Yin says, a, a practitioner usually wants to attain enlightenment or Buddhahood but this creates a duality of subject and object. The person who is seeking to attain is separate from the attainment, the object of his search. In seeking to become one with the Buddha, she separates herself from it. This is the state of opposition, of duality. Or perhaps the practitioner knows very well that he has never been separate from the Buddha, but since he has not yet experienced this unity, he seeks the Buddha within himself. Yet even seeking the Buddha within oneself creates opposition between one's searching mind and the Buddha mind. This way, oneness can never be obtained. Um, elsewhere, um, Xing Yin uses the image of trying to catch a feather on a fan, that in moving the fan, you create air turbulence which shifts the, the feather and makes it very hard to catch. We have to dro drop the dualities and, the, and that um, means that the, the turbulence is, has no impetus anymore. It's a very subtle process. So he was talking about if you are seeking Buddha within, even that um, is a problem and that oneness won't be attained because it's, we're dividing ourselves. He continues, if that is true, is it correct to practice without seeking anything at all? Every day we chant the four great vows. The fourth is, I vow to attain supreme Buddhahood. What I vow to attain supreme Buddhahood. We say, um, the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. What is purpose, the purpose of chanting this vow if aspiring to attain Buddhahood sets up an opposition? On the other hand, if we do not define our goal, is practice possible? If we don't define our goal, 
is practice possible? If you really believe that there is no separation, then it is possible to practice without opposition. You must have faith in the fundamental unity to truly begin practicing. However, most people remain in duality. They may speak of one God, but they see themselves as separate from God. But in Chan, at the very beginning of your practice, you must have faith in non-duality. It is the same unity in the Gungan, the Koan. And then he quotes the Koan. The myriad dharmas return to the one. To what does the one return? The myriad dharmas return to the one. To what does the one return? In other words, if all existence comes from one God, where does God come from? Where does God come from? The emphasis in affirming faith in mind is on practice. Many of you are practicing counting the breath. The goal of this method is to reach a unified or single-minded state. After you get to the point where there are no thoughts other than counting, eventually the counting just naturally stops. The numbers disappear, the breath disappears, and the idea of counting the breath is gone. The only thing left is a sense of existence. Using a Chan method such as a Huado, it's another way of talking about a Koan, may have a similar result in the beginning stages. At a certain point the huado may disappear, or you simply cannot use it anymore. But this does not always mean that you have reached a single-minded state. You may have still have the thought of trying to use the huado, only when, th only when the thought of practicing is, is gone will your mind be in a peaceful state of oneness. A person who has experienced oneness is different from an ordinary person. Her faith is stronger than one can, who can at best intellectually understand what it means to have no distinctions in the one's mind. To personally experience it is quite another thing. And it gives us, it gives us a strong um, impetus to keep, keep going when we've had this experience, when we know it's possible, when we've caught a glimpse of a mind without distinctions. It can help us through many ups and downs. Master Shahin presents um, the, the, the stages that he uh, would employ in his teaching. He says, 
the, the practice of Chan should progress in, in a sequence of stages from scattered mind to simple mind to one mind and no mind. He says, first we gather our scattered thoughts into a more concentrated or simple state of mind. From this concentrated state, we can enter the mind of unity. Finally, we leap from the unified mind to the state of no mind. This final process can be accomplished more quickly using the Chan methods of Hua Do or Kongan. To go from one mind to no mind does not mean that anything is lost. Rather, it means that you are free of the single-minded state. Someone who dwells in one mind would either be attached to samadhi or else would feel identified with a certain deity. That's if they were doing some kind of deity practice. It is only after you are freed from this unity and enter no mind that you return to your own true nature, also called mu or chan. Or they say, in fact, Cheng Yin uses Wu because that's the Chinese form of, of Wu, Mu. And then that's in the Koan. But then, but then he makes a very important warning. Even though this progression in the practice takes place, while you are actually practicing, you should not think to yourself, I'm striving to concentrate my mind, or I want to get to the, to the state of one mind or the state of no mind, or another thing, people can come into Dokusan and, and want to know which stage they're at. I'm feeling this so for this and this and this, and I, what stage am I at? If you have such ideas of seeking, you will be in trouble. Just concern yourself with the method. Persist with your method to the very end. This in itself is close to a state of unity. If you don't let go, eventually you will reach a point where the method disappears and you will experience one mind. So not to, not to um, wonder what stage we're at. It's a little bit like um, lifting off the, 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 the lid off a pot that's um, almost at the boil on a weak element. You can go off the boil completely if we if we keep on um, checking on it. Once a meditator in his sixties said to me, "Shifu, I'm very old." <laughs> I'm very old, yes. I may not have many years left. I really would like to get enlightened as soon as possible. If I don't get enlightened before I die, I will have wasted my life. I said, precisely because you are so old, you shouldn't have any hopes of getting enlightenment, just practice. The man asked, how can you tell me to practice and not show me how to get enlightened? I replied, if you have an idea of enlightenment that is already your downfall, you cannot make much progress. If you do nothing but practice, at least you will approach the state of enlightenment, even if you never get enlightened. The effort is never wasted. There's a, there's a, san, a saying in, within the um, uh, Vajrayana tradition 
abandon all help, abandon all hope of fruition. Obviously, we come to practice because we want the fruits of practice. But once we're practicing, we have to abandon all our notions about those fruits and just practice, just practice for the sake of practicing. Attempts to stop activity will fill you with activity. Remaining in duality, you'll never know of unity. And not to know this unity lets conflict lead you farther astray. When you assert that things are real, you miss their true reality. But to assert that things are void also misses reality. Everything is in flux. Everything changes. Everything is, is like that, that water that had ripples on the surface. Dynamic, moving, shifting, due to all kinds of, of causes and conditions coming together. If we try to pin things down, then we, we miss that, that, this reality of, of, of dynamic movement. But then we also fall into error when we assert that everything is empty and in flux and fluid. Because there are, there are things do exist in a certain way. The more you talk and think on this, the further from the truth you'll be. Cut off all useless thoughts and words, and there's nowhere you cannot go. Now this, this can refer to um, ordinary, ordinary talk, or it can also point to our, um, an inner monologue. Um, one of the, the big mistakes we can make is, um, for instance, in breath practice, is um, making, uh, having a kind of uh, inner monologue commentary on what we're doing. And somebody described this as, as like being alone with our thoughts. It's, it's not enough just to sit there with sort of with passive our mind on the breath and and uh, a commentary going on. We must, it's really right from when we sit down on the cushion and take the first breaths to um, actively keep coming back with energy, actively letting go of whatever gets in between us and our thoughts and our, th our breath. Cut off all useless thoughts and words and there's nowhere you cannot go.
cutting them off is, is, is a helpful image. Uh, sometimes we'll suggest that people work in this way of cutting off um, it's like like Manjushri on the altar here, who has has a sword in one hand, and um, it's it's the delusion cutting sword. And if you're recognizing that your thoughts are useless and and not helpful, then to just lop them off, cut them off, because they're they're fundamentally um, insubstantial anyway. They don't, we don't have to surgically remove them, just chop, 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 one after another. When we, when we uh, um, cut off our useless, useless thoughts and words, it's not, um, it's not like we're trying to get rid of them. We're just not giving them any energy. And we know to some degree or another that, that these, these thoughts and words are, are empty, essentially empty, in other words, non-existent. So we're not getting, needing to get rid of them. We're just not... Um, feeding them energy by uh, through our attention. That's an important point. Master Yen points out that if we just try to destroy something, we're still bound up in it. We're still um, entangled in it. He says, suppose you try to clear a blocked pipe by pushing another object into it. Whatever was originally in the pipe is pushed out but the new object is now blocking the pipe. When you try to use existence to get rid of existence, you will always end up with existence. When you throw something away, it is gone. But does it cease to exist? In local terms, yes. In the border picture, however, that is not the case. On this earth, no matter how hard you try to throw anything away, it will still stay somewhere on the earth. And he tells us the story of Monkey, which some of you may know from the novel, the Chinese novel, or from the um, various um, TV programs that are made of the story. But uh, in this novel, um, which is called Monkey, the, the hero is a, a kind of su super monkey who is, is um, so powerful that he can travel huge distances. 180,000 miles in one somersault. Um, and in this story, he's, he's um, journeying to the western paradise of Amitabha Buddha, this heavenly realm. And uh, on the way, in the, this is the version that Master Xing Yin tells anyway, it's a little different in the, at least in the monkey I've seen, but on the way, he comes upon five tall mountain peaks. 
and he figures that it would take him just one leap to get to the other side of these mountains. So uh, first he takes a little break and he urinates at the, at the base of one of these mountains. And then he somersaults over the mountains. And after he lands, he notices a funny smell and he thinks, ah, oh, some shameless monkey must have taken a leak here. And actually, of course, he's not got to the other side of the mountains. He's just somersaulted back to the original spot. And Xing Yin says, the five mountains in this story symbolize the five skandhas. So um, I've come across these all, but they're what constitute um, uh, us. The Tibetans call them the, the five skandhas, the perishing collection, mind and body, these aspects that um, decay, but that we identify as, as our being ourself. So the mind and the body. The five mountains in the story symbolize the five skandhas within which sentient beings are trapped. All of your actions will boomerang back to you and you will have to take the consequences. If you throw anything away, it will be you who has to clean it up. You may think that you can avoid responsibility by passing it on to another person. In the short term, it may work, but ultimately you will have to deal with it yourself and in addition, you have caused trouble to others. Therefore, you should not try to get rid of your vexations, rather should be willing to accept them. Accept them, but not give them energy. And of course, we're, we're really, um, with, with the climate chaos starting to reap, um, our careless throwing away of, of of stuff, the stuff of our uh, consumer lives. More, more on the subject of talking. Talk. The more you talk and think on this, the further from the truth you'll be. Hanya, I um, forgot to turn on my timer, so give me some kind of a signal when I've got up to my time. Um, so, one of the very helpful... Ah, oh, you need this. <laughs> oh, 42 minutes, okay. Thank you. Not, not, not very much time left here. One of the one of the most helpful things about about doing sashin is that we have no talking. Um, It's, it's can't emphasize enough how important it is to maintain that this guideline for, for others, if not for ourselves. Um, but even if we are sticking to the letter of the no talking, 
then there can be still, we can still be talking to ourselves. And um, in, we, we'll just get further and further away from, from the truth if we are just allowing this inner monologue to keep going. So it's something to be very um, vigilant about. Catch ourselves and um, keep cutting off the, the thoughts and words, useless thoughts and words. Returning to the root itself, you'll find the meaning of all things. If you pursue appearances, you overlook the primal source. Awakening is to go beyond both emptiness as well as form. So, pursuing appearances. Appearances refers to, to this world of form that we live in. Most, most of, 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 of our time we spend, we spend pursuing appearances. In practice, you try to illuminate the world around you this is the world of appearances. But as long as illumination is directed towards outward appearances, you miss the primal source. It is only by turning the illumination inward that you return to the source and get to the meaning of all things. If you can do this even for a split second, you will transcend the state of, empty, the state of emptiness. The source or root is Buddha nature. How do you return to the root? By letting go of all words and thoughts and eliminating all grasping and rejection. You must begin with a method, but at some point you must let it go. Likewise, you should not hold on to any experiences that come up. When the method and experiences are no longer necessary to you, you will have returned to the source. This source, or Buddha nature, is the lively manifestation of great liberation and great wisdom. In great liberation there is nothing left, but this is not the same as the stubborn emptiness. It's a kind of blank state. Liberation goes beyond both emptiness and form. We don't get stuck in appearances, nor do we get stuck in the, the primal uh, void. I'll just finish up, we're, we're running out of time. with um, something on thoughts from another source. This is from a book, Not One Single Thing, a commentary on the Platform Sutra. And um, it struck me as an important reminder, just um, what he's saying here about uh, thinking, because I think it's, we hear all this, this, these admonitions in, in the Affirming Faith of Mind and elsewhere to, to let our fond opinions go, to to abandon thought, to cut thoughts off, thoughts and words. And we may think, well, if we do that, surely we won't be able to function in the ordinary world. 
And um, Harada Roshi says here, non-thought does not mean not to think. It means not to be carried away by a particular idea. We're, we are humans, so of course we think. That's what humans do. It has even been said that humans are legs that think. I hadn't heard that. Legs and arms that think. The purpose of Zen is not to become people who don't think, but to think only when we need to, not to be lost in unnecessary thoughts, but to see what is most necessary right now. If we cook rice, we have to think about how much to cook and how to do it the best way. If we're chopping wood, we have to think about the best way to chop. Or if we go grow vegetables, to think about the best way to cultivate them. But people are always thinking instead about how they look to others. When it is cold, put on clothes. When you are hungry, just eat. No extra decorations need to be added to these actions. When you are sick, become sick completely. When meeting a crisis, instead of grumbling and saying, why did this have to happen to me? Just become that crisis completely, without separating from it and complaining. Don't think about extra things, but live totally embracing just what comes to you, not carrying thoughts about the past or wondering what's going to happen in the future. If you only think what is necessary, you won't be carrying the past around, thinking, I should have done that, or oh, if only I had done it that way. We miss the present when we carry around these kinds of thoughts. Live this moment fully in the most appropriate way. Live this moment fully in the most appropriate way. Just this. Just this inhalation, just this exhalation. Just move. Cut off all useless thoughts and words and there's nowhere you cannot go. Returning to the root itself, you'll find the meaning of all things. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.